Take your Bible, if you will, and open it <clears throat> to Matthew chapter 21. While you do that, let me just say it's good to be back from our uh, trip uh, to uh, Israel. <clears throat> I said to the crowd Wednesday night, I feel like the husband who has come home after uh, being away and finding the house has been rearranged. I noticed we have new chairs. Um, uh, it looks nice. And then I noticed there's a clock back here. Y'all put that up while I was away, <laughs> hoping that I would pay attention to it. Um, but uh, in fact, I like it. It, 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 uh, it reminds me I have about an hour and 30 minutes left. <clears throat> Boy, you should have seen some of the looks on some of your faces, you see. Well, today is Palm Sunday, and it's uh, um, a day that we uh, love to remember and celebrate every year at this time. I wish that you could have been with Nancy and me a little over a week ago as we stood there on the uh, Mount of Olives looking down into the city of Jerusalem um, as we made our way ourselves down that road that uh, Jesus would have ridden the donkey uh, that day into the city of Jerusalem to the eastern gate. Um, <clears throat> it was exciting just to be there, especially this close um, uh, to Easter. I have been to Israel on three occasions, and uh, this was the first time I'd been there this close to, to Easter, and it really did have um, uh, special significance in that regard. But um, you, th you imagine Jesus as he um, made his way down that road and um, how exciting it must have been to be a part of the crowd that day following Jesus as he rode the coat down that winding road from the Mount of Olives past the Garden of Gethsemane, which would have been to the right and uh, across the Kidron Valley and up through the Eastern Gate uh, into the Holy City of Jerusalem. This event is recorded actually in all four of the Gospels, but this morning I want to look uh, in Ma Matthew's account here in Matthew chapter 21. Now, traditionally, this event has been called uh, Jesus's triumphal entry. It was Jesus's last major public appearance before his crucifixion. Um, uh, this was um, no incidental event. Uh, this was not just something Jesus decided to do at the last moment. This event was always on God's prophetic calendar. Uh, it's significant that the uh, triumphal entry fulfilled Daniel's prophecy in which the Lord predicted the time from uh, Artaxerxes' decree ordering the rebuilding of the temple, which on the 20th day of Nisan, uh, or Nisan in uh, 445 BC, until the coming of the Messiah. And Daniel had prophesied that it would be seven weeks of seven years, which would uh, amount to 49 years, or in 62 weeks of seven years, which would be 434 years for a total of 483 years. Now, Jerusalem's restoration was finished 
in 396 B.C. That was also the end of Malachi's ministry and the completion of the Old Testament canon. So the first seven weeks end in 396 B.C. with the completion of uh, prophecy and the conclusion of the Old Testament. The second period of weeks, the 62 weeks that Daniel prophesied, or 434 years, begins with the 400 years of silence between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament with Jesus' coming. It ends around A.D. 33 or 34 when Jesus when Jesus died. Now let me show you how precise this actually is. Early in the 20th century, respected British uh, historian and scientist Sir Robert Anderson, who was the head of Scotland Yard, determined if you take um, March 14th, the day, the 20th day of Nisan, in the year 445 BC, when the decree to re rebuild Jerusalem went forth, and you add to it 483 years, or exactly 173,880 days, you come to April the 6th, AD 33. Now, what is significant about April the 6th, A.D. 33? It was on that very day that the first Palm Sunday occurred. The day that Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem for his coronation. The day that Daniel had prophesied. Friend, listen, this was no incidental thing, happening, event. This was all in the plan of God. Um, it's Passover time. It's the highest, the most holy week of the Jewish year. Jerusalem was crowded. Historians tell us that there was estimated between two and three million Jewish pilgrims who would flood into the city of Jerusalem or into the surrounding villages because naturally the city would not be able to hold that many people. But they were either in the city or in the villages surrounding the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. In addition, Jews all over the world would make their pilgrimage at least once in, a, in, in their lifetime. Every, the Jewish law mandated that every Jewish male within 20 miles of Jerusalem was to come for Passover. So you can imagine how many people there would be in Jerusalem at this time.
The Passover lamb reminded the Jews of the slain lamb whose blood was put on the door over the doorpost of the Israelites back in Egypt before they left um, in their escape from Egypt from captivity. The night the death angel passed over and saw the blood of the slain lamb painted over the doorpost, the death angel would pass over those houses sparing those Israelites inside. It is estimated that some 260,000 lambs would be sacrificed in Jerusalem during Passover time. Friend, there was great joy. There was excitement. There was celebration on this occasion. Jesus could not have picked a more dramatic moment to enter Jerusalem than on this occasion. The excited multitude lined the streets. Thousands were there waiting for their long-awaited Messiah to celebrate his entrance into the holy city. They took their coats and they lined the street with them. They took the branches of palm trees and waved them in the air. They saw in Jesus their conqueror, their deliverer. The one anticipated for over a thousand years who would free them from the oppression of Rome. They shouted, look there in verse 9 of Matthew 21. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now Hosanna meant save our nation now. Instead of riding in on a white stallion like other kings, Jesus rides in on the coat of a donkey, the animal of the poor, the least of all animals. He used this donkey to symbolize what his rule was about. He didn't come to be their great, mighty political leader as they were anticipating. Instead, he came as their suffering servant, their final sacrificial Lamb, who would himself give them new life, but not in the way they expected. If you've got your Bible open there, I want you to read with me, beginning in verse 1, here in Matthew chapter 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. Now this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, the prophet here meaning Zechariah, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a coat, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the coat and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. 
And the reason we know they're palm branches is because that's what John tells us in his gospel. And the crowds went before him and and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And here's what I want you to take away from this account of the uh, triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday. Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem can be your own entry into a brand new life. I want us to look here at this first Palm Sunday event, and I want us to see some of the implications of it for us today. There are three noticeable actions of Jesus that uh, we need to give our attention to. First of all, let's consider Jesus riding on a coat of a donkey. Now, this event as I said earlier, was not a spur-of-the-moment decision on Jesus' part. Jesus knew that this day was coming. He had known this from eternity past. Jesus knew when he came to this earth that this day would be uh, approaching, that he would come to this moment. It is a day that he had prepared for. He apparently arranged in advance with a man in the nearby village of Bethpage for the the loan of a colt, a donkey no one had ever ridden before. It had not yet been mastered by anyone. Now, according to verse 4, this was a direct fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a coat, the foal of a donkey. Now look at the response of the owner of the donkey um, uh, in verse uh, in Mark chapter 11 verse 6 it tells us and they let him them go the coat and the donkey there was an immediate obedience to the Lord's request this man didn't um, argue um, with those messengers that Jesus had sent he didn't hold back he didn't hesitate he gave them up immediately for the Lord's use friend the owner of that coat is an example for us of what it means to know that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is King, that Jesus is sovereign. All this man needed to hear was the Lord needs them and he gave what he had. I want to ask you a question this morning. Are we as willing to serve Jesus as Lord as king, as this man? What do we have that Jesus needs? What do we have that Jesus has asked of us and we have not been willing to give? If he said to us, I need this from you, would we give it our time, our talent, our resources, our possessions? Are we the kind of people who only need to hear, the Lord needs this. The Lord needs it. 
and we gladly surrender it to the Lord. Can I just say to you this morning, Kelly Bailiff is a perfect example of what this man right here was willing to do himself on that day. Kelly heard the Lord say to her, I need you to do something. I need something from you. You see, Kelly is not giving her kidney to Andrew directly. Kelly is giving her kidney to the Lord directly, and he in turn is giving her kidney to Andrew. Jesus spoke to Kelly and said, Kelly, I need something from you. This man, this brother of yours, this brother in Christ, his kidney is failing, and he needs a kidney, and I've chosen you to be willing to give your kidney to me so that I can give it in turn to him. That's a part of what it means to live the surrendered life. I want to ask you this morning, are you living the surrendered life? That word surrender, we don't really like. We love to sing that song, I surrender all. And I want to look around and say, we're all a bunch of liars. Seriously, I'm not being funny. I'm not being cute. We know it's not true. We know we've not surrendered all to Christ. But we, I believe in our heart of hearts, we want to, amen? We want to be at that place in our life where when Jesus says to us, I need this from you, I, I need you to do this, that we just willingly, gladly, humbly say, yes, Lord, it's yours. It's yours. In literal term, that word surrender means to give up something to another person. It also means to relinquish something granted to you. It could include your possessions. It could include power or goals, even your life. Listen, I'm sure there's some people who don't understand how Kelly could give up an important organ like her kidney for someone else. You know why? Because we don't truly understand what it means to be surrendered. Christians today need to hear uh, what it means to live the surrendered life. We don't hear much about that today. Have you noticed that? We don't hear much about living the surrendered life. But what does it mean exactly? The surrendered life is the act of giving back to Jesus the life that he has granted to us. It's relinquishing control. It's relinquishing our rights, our power, our direction, all the things that we do and say, all that we do possess. It's giving everything to him. It's being willing to surrender everything to his lordship. Jesus himself lived a surrendered life. You remember what he said in John chapter 6 verse 38? I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. He said on another occasion, I seek not my own glory. Friend, Jesus never did anything on his own. Jesus never did anything to bring glory to himself. Jesus lived to bring glory to God. You see, I'm convinced, as I said, shared with the folks coming through yesterday through the Holy uh, Week tour, that 
the, the, the one thing that I believe, um, uh, the one uh, reason we sin uh, like we do is because God put us on this earth to bring glory to himself. And yet we do like Adam and Eve did way back in the garden. We disobey God because we somehow want to bring glory to ourselves instead. Jesus lived to bring glory to his Father. Therefore, he gave up everything in order to please the Lord. He says, I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things, for I do always those things that please him. Jesus' full surrender to his Father is an example of how we all should live. This man was willing to give up his possessions, his donkey, and his coat because the Lord simply needed them. He didn't ask questions. He didn't hesitate. He just simply gave them to those messengers because they said the Lord needs them. What is it the Lord needs from you and me that we've been unwilling to give? We could learn a lesson from this man in this story about the surrendered life. There's a second action on Jesus's part that I wanted you to see here in this uh, uh, event. And that is, watch Jesus as he observes the crowd, as he rides into the city of Jerusalem. As Jesus rode upon that colt into Jerusalem, he looked over his waiting audience. Now he must have seen the mixture of expressions on their faces as they stood and shouted and waved their palm branches. There were two general groups of people there in the audience that day, um, uh, waving and shouting. Jesus observed two different groups as he rode into Jerusalem. First, there were those who loved Jesus, who loved him. Many in the crowd were full of joy as reflected by the large smiles on their faces and uh, their, their shouting and their singing, Hosanna. They had fallen in love with Jesus. They were singing and praising God that their Messiah had come. Perhaps Bartimaeus was there. Bartimaeus was a man who had received his sight. He no longer had to walk around in beggar's rags. He had been restored by Jesus. How about Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus had paid back his debt to society and had made his peace with God. I'm sure Zacchaeus was probably somewhere in that crowd. What about the lepers? Their skin had been cleansed and now they were rejoicing for the healing that the Lord had given them. Maybe Jairus's daughter was there. This young girl who had been brought back to life after experiencing death. Lazarus, Mary, Martha, Mary Magdalene were all there in the crowd that day. Their lives reflected the love that was in their hearts for Jesus. But there was another group in that audience, in that crowd that day as Jesus looked out over um, the multitude, and that was those who loathed him. As Jesus rode along, he noticed the smiles on many of the faces, but he also noticed some frowns, kind of like I do when I look out on the crowd of Sunday you can see smiles on most of the faces, and every once in a while you just, I don't know what's going on with them. Maybe they just had a lemon before they came in, but 
Jesus looked, looked over the crowd and there were some who were smiling. They were joyful, but then there were others who seemed to be angry. who seemed to be bitter. Their facial expression showed it. They were jealous of Jesus' popularity. Uh, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the spiritual leaders of Israel were in that crowd because they hated Jesus. And they couldn't stand the fact that he was so popular. And they were just waiting for him to say just one wrong word, to make one mistake. Jesus was a threat to them. They were watching him with a critical eye. The Romans were there, fearing revolt and watching for any sign of rebellion. They were ready to crush any uprising. As Jesus rode along, he realized as he listened to the hosannas that soon sinister voices would drown out the voices of love. Those crying for him to be king would soon be crying, crucify him, crucify him. Friend, when Jesus emerged on the scene, he was an overnight sensation. Great crowds came to hear him preach and to observe his miraculous powers. A wave of religious expectation swept over the country, but the cheering did not last long. The tide began to turn against him, and before it was over, a tidal wave welled up and brought Jesus to his knees under the weight of the cross. Now, before we criticize these people for their fickleness regarding Jesus. Consider how we rejoiced and how we celebrated when we first gave our heart to Jesus as Savior and Lord. Then as, thing, as life went by, as time went by, when things didn't always go our way, when things didn't quite work out, the way we hoped, when something bad happened, when something hurtful, we experienced something painful, we lash out in anger and disappointment, and we blame God for our problems. And what happens? We quit praying. We quit communing with God. We quit fellowshipping with God where we once joyfully engaged in weekly worship, corporate worship with the people of God, and daily read our Bibles, we no longer care about it. Sadly for some, they run away from God completely. They were once active in the church, but today they spend their Sundays elsewhere, and they rarely even mention God. Friend, that's how it is with Jesus. You either love him with all of your heart or you hate him. You either love him or you loathe him. There's no in-between. Which is it for us this morning? Which group would we have been a part of on that day? On that Palm Sunday when Jesus rode into Jerusalem? Would we have remained joyful? Or would we have been one of those who would have shouted, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus looked out over that crowd and he saw them for who they really were. He knew those 
who sincerely loved him. He knew those who hated him. There's a third action we note here in this story. And that is we see Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem. Now for this, I want you to take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 19. Now I want to go back to Daniel's prophecy. This was the day Daniel had prophesied. While the people were praising him, Jesus had an unusual reaction. In Luke chapter 19, verse 41, we read, And when he drew near and saw the city, instead of being joyful with the tremendous reception, Jesus wept over it. I never truly understood what, why Jesus was weeping that day until I really studied Daniel's prophecy. Jesus said, look there in verse 41 and 42. Would that you, even you, had known. Now, you ought to put in parentheses, on this day. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Why did Jesus specifically say, on this day? Because as we saw earlier, the very day that Jesus is referring to, this day, this Palm Sunday in which he is riding into Jerusalem was the fulfillment of the 483 years of God's prophetic timetable. God had revealed to Daniel the exact moment when his Messiah, the anointed one, would be proclaimed. But there wasn't one person who understood enough of the Old Testament to recognize that this was the day that Daniel was talking about, referring to. Gabriel had said to Daniel back in chapter 9 of Daniel, verse 26, he said, and after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Friend, sure enough, it wasn't but a few days after Jesus' triumphal entrance into Jerusalem that he was crucified, listen, leaving this world with literally nothing but the clothes on his back. In literal and exact fulfillment of Daniel chapter 9, Verse 26. You see, Jesus wept on that first Palm Sunday because he knew his own people would reject him. He also wept as he said, look in verses 43 and 44 here in Luke 19. The days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You see, Jesus is merely announcing what Gabriel had predicted to Daniel would happen, the destruction of Jerusalem. We see it in chapter 9 of Daniel, the last part of verse 26 where it says and the people of the prince 
who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And for this reason, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on the donkey, thinking about all of these things, and Jesus could do nothing but weep over the sad condition of the people. Friend, this prophecy was fulfilled four decades later in AD 70 when the Roman armies under General Titus came in and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. The Jewish nation was scattered and all this happened, Jesus said, listen, because you did not know the time of your visitation, Christ coming to you. To this day, I just witnessed to this day the temple has not been rebuilt in fact there is a muslim mosque sitting on the spot where the temple used to stand the people of jerusalem should have known this time on god's prophetic calendar gabriel had predicted these events and daniel had recorded the exact time when messiah would come But the people did not recognize the time when God's Messiah Messiah came to be their king. On Sunday, the people shouted, Blessed is the king of Israel. On Friday, the mob shouted, Crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. There is nothing sadder, more heartbreaking than to see people reject Christ and rush headlong toward destruction. Can I just say to you, it still causes Jesus to weep when people reject him and his love for them. Friend, it may be that you've heard the gospel for years. You've heard the story about Palm Sunday and Easter for years, but you have yet to do anything about it personally. Can I just say this morning, I believe with all my heart that the Lord Jesus is watching us this morning. He knows every person in this room just like he knew every person in that crowd that day as he rode into Jerusalem. And as Jesus looks out over this crowd, both up here in the choir loft and out here, As Jesus looks out over us, he sees those whose hearts are truly devoted to him. He sees those who have never responded in faith to him. And he knows what our feelings, our true feelings are about him. Can I just say to you this morning, our feelings may not be for him the way they should be but his feelings for you will never change. He will always love you. He will always care about you. And he will always be brokenhearted until you respond in faith to him. I want to ask you this morning, if you would just bow your heads. I'm going to ask every, all across this room if you would just bow your heads.